0: One Sacred Pause with Jessica Winderl. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the One Sacred Pause podcast. I'm Jessica, your host, and today I'm doing something a little bit different. Um, I always knew I was going to do this, and I guess today is the day where I'm doing a solo podcast. So it's just going to be me, uh, no guests, no friends joining me. And I'm not going to lie, it feels so vulnerable to just be sitting here, Uh, talking into my microphone, sharing some things that are are deeply personal to me and hopefully of relevance to you um, as I talk about my journey as a yoga teacher and uh, more importantly my journey as a spiritual being having a human experience. So thank you for joining in. So I did get a few questions from um, people on social media and I'll get to those near the end of today's episode but I thought where I'd start is just kind of talking a little bit about what this idea of one sacred pause means and why I think it's so important in our life and why I wanted to create a podcast around this this uh, very specific idea. I've been thinking about this um, as my personal mantra for a while, several years actually, and. Really contemplating what it means when we slow down and we cultivate stillness in a very thoughtful and mindful way. Um, It's one thing to be just zoned out, sitting on the couch, watching Netflix. Um, Sure, you're in stillness, but it's very different from when you sit there with a cup of tea, looking out the window at the plants and the flowers, maybe the birds around, and you allow yourself to be present to whatever's happening in that moment and so I talk a lot about this idea of stillness and creating intentional pause because I think really this is the root of the practice for me anyways our lives get so busy and so crazy and so stressful and we have a million different distractions pulling us in a thousand different ways and unless we create a little bit of stability and foundation for ourselves through discipline, the tapas of the practice, it becomes very hard to step into a space that is all about the healing of the stillness. So Ayurveda, the sister science of yoga, talks about this and how the key to healing is stillness. It's how our physical body recharges and detoxifies. It's how our mental body releases stress. And of course, it's how our spiritual body comes into connection with source or the divine. So it's really important to think about the uh, habitual patterns, thoughts, behaviors of our life, and start to unravel and reflect and investigate how we're living our life, the choices we make, the people we surround ourselves with. And is there a way to sustainably invite in more intentional pause and stillness? And, of course, I'm also talking about the practices of meditation and inquiry. So there's a lot of ways in which we can do this. And for myself, um, I always think about the breath. That's the tool that I really love to use to bring myself back into the present moment. When I notice myself getting totally wrapped up in some small drama or big drama, (laughs) depending, I want to just stop and say, all right, Jess, take a deep breath. And the more that I have reminded myself of this, the easier it becomes. So now it's actually almost like this natural reflex. It's kind of like that idea of of, uh, Pavlov's dogs. You ring the bell and the dogs come running and start salivating. But can we use that same principle in a way to remind ourselves and encourage ourselves to stop what we're doing, disengage, plug back into the body through the breath? And through that, you know, maybe, hopefully remind ourselves also to take a more macro view of whatever's happening in that present moment. So as humans, we're designed to be in the drama and our mind is designed to pull us out of the present moment with all these distractions and thoughts. And so we're really combating this very powerful force, the fluctuations of the mind, so if we can pull ourselves out of this little drama that every thought is jumping around to and, and bringing us further and further away from source, if we pull back a second, and be like, okay, whew, slow down, take a breath, what's really going on in this situation? So pulling ourselves out to take more of a global perspective. And when we're able to take more of a global or macro perspective of any given present moment, we're creating a buffer or a barrier. And that barrier, that buffer, becomes the pause. So rather than just jumping from thought to reaction, thought to reaction, we have a thought, we have a pause, and then hopefully we have a more appropriate reaction. So I know this is so hard to do. I mean, our mind is just on autopilot a lot of the time also. And so really stopping and slowing down that thought process is such a massive practice. But if we do it, if we really intentionally try to do that and slow our thoughts down, again, I like to use the breath to do this, um, but you might have a different tool or technique, then things become so much easier. And we start to tap into more of the state of flow and grace in our daily life Even when we have really bad days or horrible things happen, um, you know, we are human. And so, even though we practice yoga and meditation, that doesn't mean we're immune to having fights with our partners, getting fired from jobs, getting into, you know, car accidents or having to put a beloved pet down. There's so many examples that we've all experienced of less pleasant things in our life. But when we practice yoga and meditation and we start to train ourselves to become not non-attached, but perhaps slightly less engaged, then things become more easeful. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later when I, I talk about what happened um, for me a few years ago, when I very randomly got diagnosed with a a very rare and aggressive cancer. um, So I just want everybody listening to know I'm not sugarcoating this. And I'm not just saying like, oh, okay, well, if you're trying to practice mindfulness and slow your thoughts down and create the sacred pause in between the thought and the reaction. I'm actually speaking from experience. And um I implement these tools in my daily life and yes it's hard yes it is a battle yes it is easy to fall into the victim mentality of oh why me and oh why can't I find happiness or that partner or that job or that apartment so guys it's all about flipping the script when we find a shift in our attitude we find a change in perspective and when we find that change in perspective All of a sudden, we step into a space that does feel easier, clearer, freer, so that we're able to sway with the wind rather than getting blown over. So, I encourage you to maybe sit with that. Like, what does it mean to have this pause in your life? And it's not just that you do it, okay, once a day for five minutes of meditation, 10 minutes of meditation, an hour of meditation. No, the, the key here, the trick here, is really trying to incorporate as many moments of stillness into your daily life as possible. So one way to start with this is just maybe taking stock of all of the distractions that you engage in on a daily basis. So television, radio, music, of course, podcasts, um, And then we start to notice, oh, isn't that interesting? That so many of the distractions in our life are actually related to technology. Hmm. And then we take this a step further. And if we want to bring it into Ayurvedic terms, we think about uh, this idea of vata-vitiation. So what this means is uh, the imbalance of the vata energy that we all are experiencing to some degree. And I talk about this in teacher trainings, how I'm fairly confident uh, when I say that all of us are experiencing vata-vitiation. And the reason for this is just the nature and quality of modern society, where we're really encouraged, conditioned, actually, to do more with less time, faster, better. So we've become these masters of multitasking, which means Every area of our life gets a percentage of our attention, a percentage of our energy. Rather than being completely focused on one thing, we're spreading ourselves so thin. And, you know, I've actually kind of stepped away from this idea, this badge of honor. I talked about this in a previous podcast of the hustle. Yeah, you know, I don't know that constantly being on the go, wheeling and dealing and and trying to make things go faster and trying to be in such control that you make shift happen. Not to uh, steal that from the the bliss crafters over at Rock Your Bliss, but um, it's true. So what do we do? Well, when we are vata vitiated and we're so much in the space of an excess of vata energy, what we're going to find is that we're distracted to the point of you know, losing things. Um, we forget to respond to emails. We lose our keys. We aren't present with our partners' conversations with our children. And we feel ungrounded. We feel like we're constantly in this flux state where we can't even catch our breath because we're running as fast as we can, trying to keep all the balls in the air juggling. So of course, this is not sustainable. I know many of us um, have experienced some level of burnout in our life. And usually this is attributed to we're just working, working, working. And when we do have time off, whether it's on vacation or the weekends, um, we actually don't know how to truly and deeply rest. You know, maybe we're going on vacation, we go down to Spain and you know, go to the bar, sit on the beach, we get too much sun, drink too much alcohol, eat too much crappy food with salt and sugar, and hey, we're on vacation, we deserve it. Or the weekend comes, and it's the same excuses and justifications. Oh, I went for a hike, or I went for a ski, you know, I can eat this bad food or have my my chocolate and, and 40 cups of coffee. Um, and in my mind, you know, and I do it too, but I'm really working hard to step away from that Um, kind of thought process, is we're ultimately just (laughs) creating more distraction. And so our body never gets the chance, our mind never gets the chance to really truly rest. And so we're just continuing the cycle of vata vitiation. And we're connected to our smartphones all the time. I mean, even when we're in the airplane, we can now get Wi-Fi. why? Why do we need Wi-Fi? I'm sorry. Your emails can wait for six hours or 10 hours if you're going somewhere really far away. So, Ayurvedically speaking, what do we do? Well, the first thing is we observe. Notice our patterns. So, where are you getting distracted? Where are you even perhaps being addicted to those distractions, the technology? Step one. Step two, Sit, pause, contemplate. All right, is it necessary? You know, maybe you do have a job where you really, truly need to be connected to the internet while you're in a plane. Great. But be honest about it and be honest to yourself. Oh, you guys, we're so good, so good at lying to ourselves. So, Rather than get angry or mad at ourselves for these behaviors, we just want to kind of, you know, give ourselves a little energetic hug and say, oh, sweet baby, you are doing the best you can. So can we activate change in our lives with a a compassion and a kindness and an understanding that all of this is by design? (laughs) The practice of spiritual inquiry is all about noticing what is and then working to perhaps step into a space that's a little bit freer, a little bit lighter through all the tools that we learn in yoga and meditation. This is going to take lifetimes, at least in my opinion. Um, you know, but just because it's going to take a really long time to come into a more fuller connection with Source or the Divine doesn't mean we don't try. No, it it means we try every day. Our yoga is not just something we do (laughs) when we show up to the Shala to practice asana. It's in fact a lifestyle that we do all day, every day, to the best of our ability. But, you know, we do have slip-ups. We are human. And so when we just notice that happening, is there a way to perhaps start to train yourself through the idea of the sacred pause to notice your negative thought patterns. When you start going down that rabbit hole of Ugh, "I'm such an idiot," why do I do that all the time? Oh, I do this over and over and over. Take a deep breath. Whew. And say, you know what? I love you. You're doing the best you can. Let's just try again. And the more that you practice this compassion and kindness to yourself, the easier it becomes. And then through the sustained practice of compassion to self, we notice perhaps maybe a little bit of softening in the areas of tension in the physical body. And then when our physical body becomes a little softer, we find this relaxation of the mental body. Again, even when life is crazy and hectic and chaotic and all of that stuff, but um, I really truly believe this. And it's funny, my husband, he, he laughs at me, he makes fun of me a lot, because um, he's like, oh my God, you're so slow. Like, I take my time when I walk through our house. I take my time when I pack to travel. I am really um, not in a rush a lot of times. <laughs> and It, it annoys, annoys my husband. He's like, come on, we got to go. Get with it. And I'm like, yeah, it's fine. We'll, we'll get there when we get there. Um, I used to be totally, totally this crazy Vata-vitiated person. And I was all over the place, all over the map. I was jumping from job to job. I was moving from city to city. And, you know, my early twenties were just a really difficult time for me in terms of struggling and not being able to really land and find my place in a community. And so I have a lot of compassion for Myself and for other people who've experienced that also. And it's just like, oh, we just want to figure it out. Like, when is something going to click? And it's really that aggressive energy of trying to like make something work, trying to really get that square peg into the round hole. Like, oh, I I can make it fit. I can make it work. And, you know, these practices of yoga and meditation are actually a little bit of the opposite. When we slow down, when we just observe what's happening around us, how our body feels, how our emotional state is, we get more and more adept at turning inward and softening. So instead of fighting against the current, eventually we just become the current, this ebb and flow, this rhythmic up and down, back and forth that carries us through this experience of being human. So what else can we do? Well, very concretely, to balance out the vata, vitiation in our life, um, we need to cultivate more practices that are about grounding and stillness. So literally, go take a walk in nature. Have a garden. Have plants. Get your hands dirty as you um, move your hands through the dirt of the earth. Like physically touch the earth. Go hug a tree go walk in the mountains and breathe and and look around you and you know of course in Norway we're so blessed because this country is just absolutely gorgeous and clean the air the water and the more that we're in nature according to Ayurveda the easier it becomes for us to be in that connection of the vibration of source Also, we can eat more warm and nourishing foods. So kitchari, of course, is like the number one Ayurvedic thing we talk about. Um, If you're not familiar with this, go online. You can find a bunch of great recipes. Um, Eating foods, oh, warm golden milk. That's so awesome. I love to to have that at night, especially in the winter. Um, Tea, plenty of herbal tea, nice and warm. And uh, restorative yoga. So the practices in our body, the asana in our body, that is all about relaxation, that is all about softening. So check that out. If you're not familiar with restorative or you don't practice it that often, I encourage you to maybe make more of a point of practicing restorative yoga. And just as a side note, I know there's sometimes confusion about this, but um, yin yoga and restorative yoga are not the same thing. They have uh, different goals and different approaches to how the practices are led. So um, even if you're really familiar with yin, I still encourage you to go check out a restorative class. So the more that we can start to make these small changes in our life, hopefully over time they begin to evolve into sustained, bigger lifestyle changes, from the food that we eat, how much water we drink, the quality of the sleep our friend circle that we surround ourselves with, where can we create more harmonious practices to lift ourselves up, to sustain ourselves as we travel the path of spiritual inquiry? So that's just some food for thought, maybe a a journal prompt for some of you listening. I hope so. So, you know, I think um, where this brings me into next is is my story and sometimes now it's been long enough it's been two years um (laughs) I almost can't even believe it happened like it's just the craziest thing and I want to share with everybody what it was like uh the day that I found out when I had cancer and what happened right after because I think karmically speaking we do choose, we do call in our parents, our partners, our life experience, our life choice. And, you know, this might be more of a conversation for another day <laughs> to talk about, um, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? And because of my unshakable faith and belief in the spiritual practice of yoga. Which for me it is a spiritual practice. It doesn't have to be for everybody, but for me it is. I really think um, there's no other way my story could have gone. <laughs> there's no other scenario that would have brought me the lessons that I needed to learn. And you know, I'm still sitting with it, and I think I'm going to continue to sit with it. But you know, it's one of those things where it's I'm not angry. I probably wouldn't even change it if i was given a choice and i know that might sound so crazy but um you know i really had to get real about life and death and face face what it, you know could be a real um a reality as many people who fought cancer or lost loved ones to know there are no guarantees in this life and yet for me i really think you know this is just one go on the merry-go-round. And so for me, it's kind of like, oh, okay, well, it, it helps me take that more macro approach to trauma and really heavy experiences in life. So um, two years ago, I guess two and a half years ago now... Uh, you know my husband and i would packed up our house he'd already moved here to norway he moved actually the end of 2015 and we were going back and forth moving our stuff we sold pretty much everything we owned gave it away and i stayed the last few weeks in the states to kind of clean up our life and you know take care of loose ends all of that stuff and i had my work permit come like we were we were ready to go and since I was leaving, I kind of wanted to do all my last few things. You know, I was going to get my hair done. I was going to the dentist and I'd had this really annoying pain in my wrist for a few years. And there was like a little bump, like on the top of my wrist, right in the middle of the wrist of the wrist crease. And so like if I would wear a watch, sometimes the watch, the um, clock on the watch, the face of the watch, that's what it is, would hit the bump and it would just like be super painful sending like uh, twinges down all the nerves in my hands. And, and it, uh, really changed my asana practice too, because I couldn't have weight bearing postures on my wrist when it was in flexion. So, uh, plank down dog was okay, but plank or anything beyond plank, um, arm balances were out of the picture. Some back bends were out of the picture. It just, it was too painful. So I'd been, I went to the doctor in 2012 when I first noticed this pain and this bump and sports physio went to a north. Uh, orthopedic guy, sports orthopedic guy. And they all just said, oh yeah, it's a ganglion cyst. Super common in women, especially your age. I was in my um, early thirties. And so I just kind of was like, all right, well, you know, we, the practice of yoga teaches us that rather than fight against limitations, we embrace them. Is there another way to make the practice of yoga work in our life. And by practice of yoga, I don't just mean asana. I mean everything about it, how we show up in the world, how we treat other people, how we treat ourselves. So anyways, I went to go have a, a surgery to remove the ganglion cyst. I was like, all right, I've got really good insurance. I knew I was leaving the country, so I had Obamacare, if anybody's familiar with that. And um, went in to the surgery, and the doctor was like, huh, okay, well, that, that, you know, not really sure what it is, but it, you know, it looks just like a benign cyst. So I didn't think much of it, went about my life, cleaning up, packing up, and then I got called in to have the stitches removed, um, you know, like 10 days later or something. And I was on my way up, driving up to Idaho to visit my parents for the last time, and I actually almost blew off this appointment. And my mom's like, yeah, just come up to Idaho, we'll go to, you know, a little dock in the box, they could take the stitches out, no big deal. And I was like, you know what? Actually, I have the appointment. I'm just going to go get it over with. and I'll be up. And so I was sitting there, and the the doctor is looking at my wrist at the stitches. She says, all right, well, the good news is, you know, there's no infection. You're healing really well. And then she said, but I do have to talk to you about something really serious. And I still, in my mind, was driving to Idaho, saying goodbye to my parents. Like, I wasn't even really paying attention. And then all of a sudden... The room starts spinning, and my body got so hot and clammy when she said, I'm so sorry to tell you, but you have cancer. And when you're blindsided by information like this, it's so surreal. And there was never any question that this would be cancer. There was never any idea that I was sick. You know, I was super healthy. I'd been healthy my whole life. I felt good. I was excited to move to Norway and start the next chapter of my life. And it's literally like an out-of-body experience. Like, I could see myself sitting there on the bed talking to the doctor. And later, I found out, of course, that this super rare soft tissue cancer, synovial sarcoma, um, Of all the cancers diagnosed, 1% of the population gets a sarcoma. And then 1% of that 1% gets synovial sarcoma. And usually life expectancy is three to five years, and it's very aggressive. It it many times spreads to the lungs and other areas of the body. So um, all of a sudden, all of the plans I was making... To come to Norway were put on hold and um, I sat there I think in the doctor's office for like an hour after she told me and I I didn't hear anything she said other than we've already booked you in with a specialist we already have everything set for you ready to go um, and all she said was this is very very serious you have to take it seriously and yeah, that's about all I remember. So I sat there they gave me some cookies and some juice and really just trying to process uh what happened and so my first call uh was to my mother. And gosh, <laughs> sitting here crying. <sighs> Having to make a call like that is terrifying. <sighs> My mom was like, she answered the phone. Hi, Jess, are you on the road? And said, no, no, I'm not on the road. Um, I'm at the doctors and I have some bad news. (sighs) You know, my mom was absolutely blindsided as well. And she said, okay, well, um, I'm going to hang up. I'm going to call your dad. Let's just see what we need to do. Let's find out where you need to go get treatment. And, you know, kind of just jumping into that mode of, taking control and trying to do what we could to control a very uncontrollable situation and so then I hung up with my mother and then then I had to call my husband in Norway eight hours ahead and uh that too that too was a rough call um you know when you're not around with your partner your husband or wife and you're not there with your parents or your children or we don't have children but um so then my third phone call was to my best friend, and luckily she was able to take the day off work, and I met her at back at our apartment that we shared together, and basically just sat there. Like, I still, I didn't even know the name of the cancer. I couldn't even look in the papers that the doctor had given me, and it's, it's just surreal. And then I, I did go up to Idaho. I went up with my parents, and I still, we went to Montana and saw my brother, and again, it was a few weeks until my next doctor's appointment, so... Um, you know, basically, we were just trying to stay positive. We didn't knew nothing about the cancer. I didn't even want to look at it for the first few weeks. So we just were very kind to one another and to ourselves. And we're like, you know what? There's nothing we can do right in this moment. So we're just going to wait for the, the appointments. And then we'll have more information and go from there. So, of course, I didn't eat. <laughs> I didn't sleep. Um, and I started thinking about my mortality. And, you know, it's really crazy because I think about it now, talk about it now, and um, I actually really like to consider the idea of death. And I don't mean that in a morbid way. I mean that in a spiritual way. What happens? What happens when we die? And where do we go? And what happens to the people we leave behind and those emotional connections and bonds? And So I got, it was really crazy. Like, I got into this super clear space about death and about my life and the choices I'd made thus far and who I was. And, you know, the thing that was so cool for me was first of all, not once did I say, ah, why me? Why is this happening? I just was like, ah, all right, buckle up. Um, I asked to be on a spiritual path, and here I am. The universe delivered, uh, giving me one of the hardest lessons that I probably will need to navigate in my entire life on this earth. And so I got really clear about the situation. And one of the things that was really um, surprising for me is that I was completely happy with every choice I'd made and even the bad choices. Because it brought me to a place where I was strong enough emotionally to handle um, this this blindside slap from the universe. And so that even though I knew things were going to get worse before they got better. Somewhere deep within, I had this courage and the strength to be like, all right, this is meant for me. And not in a punishment kind of way, like, oh, I deserve this. No, it was more like a, hmm, I asked for the lesson. And this is the manner in which the lesson is being presented to me. And actually, strangely, that brought me a lot of comfort. And it made me feel a lot better about the entire process. And so you know, it was the next the next few months were a little crazy and going through treatment. I had already moved out of our apartment, so I had to move into a cancer house in Salt Lake. Thank God it was so wonderful. They had just built it. It was brand new. So that's where I lived when I was getting my treatments. And six days after my last treatment, <sighs> hopped on a plane and came to Norway. So then my, my journey started with the immigration and the healing and the recovery. And let me tell you, people, nobody prepares you for what happens after cancer treatment ends. Everything's like a flurry of um, activity, and you're going to doctors and specialists and here and there in the hospital and during the treatment. And then after the treatment, it's like silence, stillness. Oh shit. Now I actually have to sit with this and process this and work through new emotions that maybe you never even had a name for because you'd never experienced before in your life. So 2016 was rough. Um, I moved to Norway in June, June 2016. And a lot of that year I don't remember. And also at the same time, uh, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer she is fine, thank God. And our beloved dog, Mango, died unexpectedly of cancer, um, all in the same time, all while I was getting my treatment. So it was kind of like, oh, my God. <laughs> there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to run. Like, this is in your face, Jessica. And so when I'm talking about, you know, all these other practices of yoga and meditation and stillness and contemplation and inquiry, um, When we have these negative experiences in life, and I don't even like to use that word negative because then it it, it attaches this judgment to it. Um, I'll say less optimal experiences in life. Really what it is is an invitation for us to get present and to get clear. Where are we just sort of on autopilot? Where are we just going through the motions in our life? And where can we get more present, more intentional, more grounded, So instead of being pulled off in a million different directions, trying to multitask so that every area of our life only gets a percentage of our energy, can we now reprioritize and say, nope, I'm only going to do one thing at a time. I don't want to be a master of multitasking. I want to be a student and beginner of presence. And I want to be really clear, too, that... um, you know i i, I realized that i'm making my experience going through cancer treatment seem very um flippant or easy and that wasn't the case at all um of course there was a lot of pain and a lot of suffering and of course a ton of fear and anxiety and stress and even though i was in a space where i was able to consider all of the possibilities and outcomes and you know what happens if if this is the end of my story, what happens if it's time for me to shed this experience of being human and, and move on to the next realm? You know, so it's it wasn't like it was just oh that was an interesting year. <laughs> it, I, it radically changed me and changed my perspective of life and changed a little bit I think of my course and the message that I bring when I teach yoga and how I choose to run my business and there's just so much more information I think that I have available to myself as I navigate through my life and move forward and have the absolute privilege <laughs> of getting older. Um, you know, I'm, I'm healthy now. I'm fine. I see my doctor every three months and, and do more tests and, you know, check-ins and stuff. But um, it's just, there's so much to learn from these experiences that do bring us pain and do bring us suffering but it comes down to really what is what is our attitude and around these types of experiences and if we step into the victim idea of oh my god life is awful and bad things always happen to me and you pay your bills and then you die <laughs> well i think it's going to be really hard to see beyond that, to get out of the story that your mind makes up. And so we have to strive really hard to perhaps see the bigger picture or see the connections and the lessons between our experiences. Hey, yogi, are you ready to deepen your yoga practice and gain the tools to confidently teach a yoga class? Join the Atman Yoga School for one of their next teacher trainings in Norway, with 200 and 340 hour programs and weekend immersions offered around the country. These trainings offer an inclusive, warm and supportive community and are designed to serve the needs of the modern yogi while honoring the ancient wisdom of yoga and Ayurveda. Check out their website today for more information on the upcoming trainings at atmanyogaschool.com. That is Atman, A-T-M-A-M, yogaschool, in one word, dot com. Atmanyogaschool.com. Join the tribe today. So that was also, I think, great lessons in compassion for myself. And it allows me to really bring in more of a compassionate understanding of other people and other humans who are going through painful situations in their life. And, you know, one of the takeaways I had from my experience is that um, suffering is suffering and it doesn't really matter what the cause of the suffering is. If it's a divorce, if it's an illness, if it's, I mean, it could be a million different things, but As a human who wants to connect on a very deep level to other humans, the first thing that we have to recognize or I have to recognize is that we all are one and we all share the same experience, the same emotions, hopes, dreams, desires, expectations, perceptions. And when we're able to really kind of work to break down these barriers of illusion that convince us that we are separate then, that's when we're able to step into a space of healing and we can hold space for one another. We can be a support and encouragement for one another. And I think that really is one of the main messages of yoga as well. Like, what does it mean to be a yogi? Well, we can look to the sutras, we can look to Patanjali, the eight limb path to give us guidance. And again, it just comes back to how we show up in the world, what's important to us and are we willing to act with ahimsa, that that nonviolence, that non-harming in our actions, thoughts, words, and not only that, but purposefully cultivate compassion and understanding for others. And just sort of that idea of ah, you too. Where we sort of nod our head, we catch the eye of somebody, a stranger, and we just have a moment of a shared experience where we're like, ah. Oh, I see you. And really, I think that's what all of us crave is just that feeling of being seen and being understood. And I think it is the karmic lessons that we all get to play out and live that allow us to cultivate that compassion and understanding for ourselves and for others. So when I talk about my experience being diagnosed with cancer and going through that, it's not to... Play up sympathy and and for people to be like, oh, wow, gosh, that's terrible. I'm so sorry for you. No, it's really about can this become an example and can I live my example to the best of my ability to be the change that I wish to see in the world to take from Gandhi? So when I feel myself getting pulled into small dramas and into the craziness of my mind and the monkey mind chatter, again, I stop, I breathe, I observe, I try to create more of that pause, more of that barrier to sort of stop myself from going down that rabbit hole. And such a hard practice, but the more that I stay with it, the easier I find it becoming. So, yeah, I think that's that's what I've got on that. And, you know, one of the things too that this experience really taught me is it solidified this understanding in myself of grace and integrity and what I think it means to live your yoga. And to me, being able to live my yoga means that not only do I talk the talk, because we can all learn to do that, but I actually walk the walk. So my actions and my words match up There's not a disconnect. I am the same person on a Monday as I am on a Wednesday as I am on a Saturday. Um, And I think that can be really hard and and can be a struggle sometimes to really stand firmly in our authenticity. And that took me a lot of time and it took me a lot of perseverance. And, you know, I worked with a therapist for many years that really helped me and pushing myself a little bit outside of my comfort zone to find these practices. And now a lot of these practices are just sort of like second nature to me. And I can't even imagine living my life without them. But to me, grace is really the ability to walk through the fire, trusting the process that everything in life is temporary. And rather than attaching judgment to the good or the bad it's more of just a, a an impartial observation ah this is interesting this moment is very painful or ah this is interesting this moment is very pleasurable and when we're able to do that or when I'm able to do that i find that instead of having these huge swings in my emotions and my attachments and up and down and good and bad i'm a little bit closer to neutrality and i'm able to really um find this equanimity this balance between the dualities the shadow and the light the good and the bad the negative and the positive the up and the down and it's in that space of equanimity that i start to find more calm more peace and the grace it's grace is like my very favorite word and all that it represents is the embodiment of one sacred pause so that even when life gets really challenging and hard and it feels like just this uphill battle, we still have this innate quiet ability to show up day in and day out with this faith that everything is unfolding in the manner in which it needs to be, in which it should be. And so grace is a quality that I really admire in other people. It's a quality that I I work really hard to try and cultivate within myself. But I don't think it's something that can be forced. I think it's something that requires patience and a lot of inquiry and a lot of contemplation. And it also requires um, integrity. And this is also something I love to talk about. And I've been doing a lot of um, workshops lately on the yamas and niyamas, the ethics, and morality of yoga the first two limbs of the yoga sutras uh, patanjali's yoga and i <laughs> i my my what i found is that uh people are interested but they're also when they hear the word ethics there's kind of like a turnoff they're like oh that's yawn snooze fest <laughs> am i going to a business lecture i don't care Um, But to me, it's actually so important. Like, this is the framework and the foundation for everything else that we do in our life. And integrity, I use this definition, and and I'm not really sure where it came from. Um, Integrity is the way that we act, and we choose to do the right thing, even when nobody's looking. So it's really easy to do the right thing when you think other people are monitoring your behavior your actions, But it's a totally different thing to still do the right thing, even if you could cut the corner and never get caught. And I really love this idea of integrity and grace together because it becomes who you are when you act with integrity. You automatically start to cultivate that state of grace and that that flow and ease in all that you do, even when sometimes it is the more challenging path. Um, you know, I found this a lot too, in business dealings in the yoga world. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about this on some past podcasts and, you know, it's always surprising to some people when they find out that, (laughs) within the context of the yoga world, there are actually some really shady behavior going on and people are not acting with integrity. They're not acting from a place of grace. And it's so disappointing more than anything when you are a person who tries to act with integrity and grace and you just kind of assume that other people are going to meet you on that same plane. And then (laughs) they don't and you're surprised and disappointed And then you have to remind yourself like, oh, why am I surprised and disappointed? Because I put an expectation on somebody that I have no control over. When all I can control, to some degree, is myself and my own actions and my own choices. So this kind of leads me into one of the questions I got, which was um, how I came to start the Atman Yoga School. And it really stemmed from this idea of you know, I'd been teaching yoga full time for a while and I'd been leading teacher trainings and participating in teacher trainings. And there were just some things that I've seen that, that weren't really jiving with what my interpretation of yoga has been. And I just was like, you know what? If I'm not finding what I'm looking for, well, then it's really up to me to build it. And then when I teach in the Atman Yoga School, I can teach the curriculum that I want to teach in the way that I want to teach it, and the students who connect with that message will find me. And the students who don't connect, totally fine. They're going to go find their teacher. We talk about this idea that there is a teacher for every student. So that doesn't mean that we want to try and be a teacher for every student, it would be impossible, and it would be exhausting, and we would never be authentic in our message because we'd constantly be wavering, trying to appeal to the masses. And so with the Atman Yoga School, you know, my, my background in, is in the philosophy and the Ayurveda, and that's what lights me up. It's my jam. And I love doing teacher trainings because that's when we really have that opportunity for the dialogue, And the inquiry and we can hash out these questions of philosophy and what does it mean to be a yogi and how do we take our practice off the mat how do we cultivate a lifestyle of grace and integrity and how can we show up in the world to be these these bearers of light and um helping others along the same path who are choosing to step into a space of courage within the spiritual realm and i don't know it just starting the atman yoga school was kind of um it started small and then it just kind of evolved the idea of it and it continues to grow and i have a lot of really grand plans <laughs> which i have to laugh at because it's you know i'm not really the one running the show here um I truly believe it is up to up to the spirit and uh, the divine. And when I kind of get out of my own way, that's when I open to other possibilities or other ways of thinking that maybe I wasn't really considering. And it's been really exciting to kind of have this, this push and pull experience of going really fast, trying to do things, trying to make things work with my business, and then also pulling back. And being like, oh, wow, okay, that didn't work. Um, Nope, that's not the direction I want to go in. And it's this real process of trial and error. And I think any entrepreneur will tell you that. I mean, you have to have (laughs) 99 no's before you hear yes. And so there is this persistence and this discipline that comes into running a business. And I will even go so far as to say, (laughs) in particular, a yoga business and it's, it's just, it's such another learning process. And it's one more space in which I get to practice my yoga. And when I get let down or disappointed from the business side of things, you know, I try to just remind myself, breathe, Jess, breathe, stop. Why are you, what are you attaching here that you perhaps maybe could let go of? And Um, release some of the expectations in order to release the suffering that comes from the disappointment and it's hard because it's of course we're modern yogis and if you teach yoga and you run a yoga business then this is how you pay your bills and so there has to be this exchange of energy that feels fair and feels right and doesn't feel like I'm taking advantage of people and doesn't feel like I'm being taken advantage of by other people and that's kind of a tricky place to navigate for sure. Um, but you know, I have my dream job absolutely. and so I'm so thankful for that and thankful to have the space to explore and try things on and see what works with my business. and also this realization that the sky's the limit, and that if if my business fails it's squarely on my own shoulders if my business succeeds it's squarely on my own shoulders and so there's really a lot of freedom that goes with that and you know I I will also say too it's pretty funny because 10 years ago 15 20 years ago um, I thought being a business person sounded like the most boring thing in the whole world (laughs) I was like "Eh, I never want to own my own business sounds too stressful and you know, I'd rather just work for somebody else, and then I know I get a paycheck every two weeks. But as I've gotten older, and as my my studentship in yoga has progressed, and then I was a teacher of yoga, again, things changed, and doors opened, and things were revealed to me that I wasn't ready for before. And slowly but surely, those doors continue to open, and I'm not just speaking about the business of yoga, I'm, I'm speaking about the entire way in which I run my business. And, you know, I have a lot of inspirational friends in the yoga community who I like to pay attention to and see what they're up to, and be inspired by their example. And that's also something that I strive to do in my business is because integrity is so important to me, I only want to partner with other people and other businesses that are also operating at a higher frequency of integrity. And that's really cool because then that means more, most likely that those people have really done some of the hard work of the inquiry that's led them to a space where they can have successful businesses within the yoga world. And I really like that 10 times out of 10, I'm going to choose to partner with somebody who who has a smaller business that's full of heart and soul and integrity than partnering with a larger business that is cutting corners and maybe not really operating at the highest level of ethics or morals. And I love having that freedom to choose, to choose who I partner with in my business. And, um, you know, I have found absolutely that when I hold myself to these high standards, the people that come into my life, are at that same frequency, and it just feels good. It feels really good. Um, we are a product of the people we surround ourselves with, and it's not always possible to cut people out of our lives, but it is possible to create the type of person that we want to call in in future. So that's something that, that really led me to create the Atman Yoga School the freedom to work with whoever I wanted to and the freedom to teach what I wanted to teach. And it's super cool. I'm, I'm finding myself after having gone through the last few years of, of cancer and recovery and, and that craziness that really did just rock me to my core and also my natural development and refinement of my own practices. I'm finding just the sweet softening in everything that I do. And that is because I'm, I'm focusing so heavily on the stillness and the inquiry. But I think it's also, I don't know, it's now what I'm being motivated by is, is I'm in no desire to be the hardest or the fastest. <laughs> no, I want to have clear connection to source. And that really guides a lot of my decisions. And it's really informing a lot of my teaching that I'm doing lately. And I I can see I'm on this trajectory that's going to continue that way. And I love it because it's so exciting. You know, as a yoga teacher, hopefully we are continuing to evolve and transform in the way and manner in which we teach. If not, um, something's wrong. Then we got to take a hard look at what we're doing. Because ultimately, teaching yoga is an act of service and it also has the ability to transform us through that act of service and so when I see my practice and my teaching melt into something new and juicier and uh quieter I get so excited and I'm just like yes oh my god this is so exciting um so we'll see. I know for myself as a teacher, what I'm really focusing a lot on is the power of my words. And not just the cueing, not just the, the direction, but the way in which we can use language to really connect to emotion. And how do we tell a story? How do we paint a picture that peels away, you know, maybe preconceived ideas of how we identify things in our daily life? And when we get down to a little bit closer to the heart of the matter, we're now beyond description. In terms of is it blue? Is it big? Is it small? Is it red? Is it green? And we're getting into more of an emotional territory. Um, we're we're going down into some deeper layers that connect more to the psyche and the subconscious and that to me is really exciting as a teacher to start to cultivate more of a connection to those tools and those skills, the language and, and the power of our words. So stay tuned because I've got some things in the works that I'm, I'm really thinking about in regards to that. Um, let's see, another question I got was uh, about my routines, my night routines, my morning routines. And I'm, I'm going to share really quickly so my morning routine is very simple. Um, I wake up, I do a little bit of dinacharya. I tongue scrape, brush my teeth. Maybe I oil pull. I don't oil pull every day. Um, and frankly, that's just cause I'm lazy and you know, I've got no problem admitting that because I'm, you know, I'm a human too. And, but I do like to try an oil pull when I have, have more time. And, um, then usually the next thing I do is I sage my entire, well, Palo Santo, my entire um, home. I, I love to do that. Just sets the energy for a really great day and walking through my house slowly. And I do it in the same direction every way every day. I do it in the same like order every day. It just feels really um, grounding and like, oh, this is a nice way to bring in the day. And then the next thing I do is I um, spray water on all of the leaves of all my plants. So I only water my plants once a week, but I spray them every day, um, and they seem to really love that. (laughs) So that's a lot of fun, too. And, you know, I'll say nice things to my plants and thank them for being so beautiful. And so much of this is about the energy and the vibration. And, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, man, you yoga people are woo-woo. But uh, talk to the scientists. The scientists will tell you the exact same thing all of the molecules in the universe are vibration and energy. And so when we move beyond just what we think of, of how a human should be, and we think more about what a being is like being of the plant, the being of the dog, the being of the human being of the rock. um, Again, we're, we're finding more connection rather than more separation. And so I love talking to the plants, and I'm also one of those people, I'm a a plant petter. (laughs) I like to touch plants and flowers, and it's a very tactile experience. Um, Then I usually go about my day, a little pranayama, stretching, maybe a little yoga practice. My at-home asana really varies. Some days it's just one restorative pose and yoga nidra which I love so very much Um, other days I'll do two hours of a practice and just kind of see where my body wants to go so it really that part depends Um, because I work for myself and because I work a lot of weekends and nights running the Atman yoga school my day-to-day is very different Um, there's usually some time in front of the computer sending emails working on projects Um, there's definitely a lot of dog, dog snuggles and cuddles. And sometimes my husband has to be like, God, back off, Jess, (laughs) you're smothering the dogs. And I'm like, I know, I know. I just want to eat them up. I love them so much. Um, yeah, dog is just God spelled backwards, (laughs) not an accident. Well, at least in English. And, um, so my day to day looks, looks very different. I usually have meetings and I might be teaching or subbing somewhere I'm slowly starting to fill back up um, my weekly teaching schedule. Uh, when I moved to Norway, I really didn't want to be tied down to weekly teaching. I, I taught for a little bit in Trondheim, then I stopped teaching, and then I moved to Oslo and um, I'm starting to pick up more and more classes, which is also directly tied into my teaching skill, my teaching goals for skills of, of my words and language. Um, I'm trying that out in my yoga classes. So I'm not just studying it or practicing it. I'm actually using the practical application of it. So that means I need to be teaching in order to practice that. So I'm doing that, which is super fun. And then at night, this is when I do most of like my practices. And if I don't get to do this, then I feel really sad and a little ungrounded. But So I shower at night. I really like to wash my day off, um, both physically and also energetically. And then, of course, then I can go to bed nice and clean. So I get in my sheets, and I'm not like bringing the grime of the day and the, you know, public transportation and (laughs) everything with me into my bed. My bed is really a sacred space for myself. Um, It always has been ever since I was a small child. And so I take. My bed very seriously, and I don't want there to be any any lingering grime. So, so I shower at night, and before I shower is when I'm going to do some of uh, the Abiyanga using the oil massage on myself. If I do um, dry brush, I do that before the oil. I don't dry brush every day, but um, I like it, and then I shower. And I might use oil again after my shower. Uh, I have a lot of vata in me. And, of course, we're in Norway where there's, you know, our winters are long, cold, dark, (laughs) all of the qualities of vata. So I tend to get very dehydrated very quickly. And so um, a lot of times my my skin will just, like, soak up all the oil. So I'll do a second round of the oil. And I use um, organic cold-pressed sesame and I put essential oils. My very favorite uh, combo, since I do this at night, is patchouli and lavender to really help, help myself ground. And it smells so good. And then I'm ready for a really solid night of sleep. And this is when I'm also doing any of my face care routines. Um, I'm religious about my face routines. I do them throughout the day. But I do uh, toner, like a mist, then I do a serum of some kind. Then I do the oil on top of that. And at night, I might also do uh, some kind of a cream. And of course, all these products are natural and organic and good for you. <laughs> no synthetics or chemicals or crap. Uh, I also, in the shower, one of my very favorite practices, and this might sound weird, it might not, is um, my mantra. My mantra my chanting. I love to chant when I'm in the shower and it just it feels so good. And so when I went through my cancer treatment, I couldn't do asana, and so my chant practice became stronger, my yoga nidra practice was strong, and that's what I did, that's what my yoga looked like. And it's just stayed with me. With I mean, I was chanting way before that, but I love just getting in the shower and chanting in the warm water and it's just it's so soothing and it's so relaxing and brings me into a space of calming down. And then um, something that I'm also really have to do, this is like non-negotiable, is read. Every night I read in bed. And again, another thing I I brought with me from my childhood, um, I'm a crazy reader. I love, love, love to read. I read all the time and I'm a super fast reader naturally. So I tend to go through books really quickly. And um, I love going to the library, picking up new books every week. And every time I travel, I buy a new book in the airport and yeah. And I like to do book swaps with my friends and family. So then I go to sleep and that's that routine. At least some of it, um, routine is so important. I remember before I started practicing yoga, I had a therapist that I worked with in she said, she had me really, we did a bunch of visualizations and we did a bunch of guided meditations and stuff. And then she's like, I need you, or I want you to really consider this idea of freedom through discipline. And I was just like, Oh my God, no, I hate discipline. I hate routine. I hate stability. (laughs) Any wonder. I mean, I'm like a raging Vata vitiated individual at this time. And it's hilarious how everything comes full circle because freedom through discipline is exactly what yoga teaches also. And she's, she, she wasn't like a yoga teacher or anything, but she was definitely on board with some of our practices. And now that's like one of my very favorite things, freedom through discipline. Like there is no way I'm going to find the freedom that I crave in my spirit, unless I have a solid foundation from which to grow. You know, sometimes people, people say that root to rise and that's, very true physically but it's also very true energetically like we have to be grounded and stable and feel secure and safe in order to start to expand and take risk and step into courage and authentically speak our truth and and there's just so much that goes into it so coming back to these routines or the dinacharya the ayurvedic self-care rituals it's really important that we create routine for ourselves so if that means that you always have your hot water with lemon or lime in the morning or you always read your book before you go to bed whatever it is it's important and it, it kind of is this message to our subconscious like oh, okay everything's all right you're doing good and yeah it just feels good so ah, oh, I love it well, I think that is where I'm going to wrap everything up. Um, I feel like I covered quite a bit tonight. And, you know, thank you guys all so much for listening in and supporting the podcast. Um, I've gotten a lot of really amazing feedback and personal messages and emails and in-person messages, and it means the world to me. So, thank you so much. Um, this really has been a labor of love. I started the uh, this idea of the podcast like a year and a half ago. So, it's been a really long time coming and It's amazing to finally put this out into the universe and, you know, create more conversation around what it looks like when we are intentionally still and we have this ability to create self healing and the self awakening and, you know, most importantly, be around other people who have the same vision we do and are are walking the path with us it's so important to cultivate that community and feel like we're not alone. And so that's, that's what I've been finding with this. The One Sacred Pause podcast is other people who feel the same way that I do. And I think that's really, really valuable. So um, thank you all so much. And I hope you enjoyed. Please feel free to send me a message. And as always, um, if you like the podcast, please go rate it, review, subscribe, share with your friends and, uh, that's it. So that's it. That's all. Hadda